Well, I am thrilled anytime anyone ever invites me back anywhere. So the opportunity to be back with you today is a real privilege, and I count it as such. I will confess that I am nervous. I've shared this before. I'm always nervous coming to College Chapel because I know when I was at a Christian college what a critical student I was of chapel speakers. And um, I always figure the Lord is reminding me of that over and over again. But he has also done something this time that is even more humbling. And that is the fact that when I was at school, back when Christian colleges were Christian colleges, I'm just kidding. We had chapel five days a week. And um, my first year, we must have had 23 speakers come and speak to you on the text I'm going to speak to you on today. And after about the 22nd message on the same text, I said, I don't ever want to hear that in chapel again. Well, be careful of what you say, because God has a funny way of bringing it back to you. I'm going to share with you a message I shared with our congregation a couple of months ago. I know that we have a number of students who are part of our fellowship, but most of you were gone when I shared this because it was right after graduation. And uh, so most of you had gone home. For those of you who were there, I apologize in advance for your having to get some review, but uh, it's probably arrogant of me to think that anybody even remembers what I said back in May. So this may seem new to you, and that's okay if it does, um, because God's Word always has something new to say to us. Would you bow with me in prayer as we begin? Father, I suppose one of the reasons I come before you right now feeling perhaps anxious in a, in a good sense about the opportunity to be here is just the potential represented in this room. Oh God, this is a high privilege for me to be able to address so many young people who've taken the step of committing themselves to an education at a Christian college, for so many who've committed themselves to the step of serving you in some vocational capacity. For many others who've said, whatever their vocation, they want to be your servant. Father, I thank you for the privilege, and I ask that you would help me in the coming moments to represent you in such a way that you would be pleased. Father, I pray that as we come to your word, that you will use it in our lives in a powerful way, and that we will not leave here the same as when we came because we will have met with you and experienced your spirit taking your word and bringing it home to our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Since the last time that I was with the student body here in a chapel service, and that was last spring, I have had the opportunity to make two trips to mission fields. One was planned, one was not. The planned trip was my first to a new field, a relatively new field for our church. We had sent a missionary just the year previous to Kiev, Ukraine, to work with Send International at a seminary there and in the establishment of Bible institutes throughout the Ukraine. It was my first trip and it was an eye-opening trip. 
Then, just a few weeks ago, I made a very different trip, an emergency trip. Sarah mentioned it. Uh, she actually said Philippines, right, right area, wrong, wrong country is Indonesia. I long to go to the Philippines. I've never had the chance yet. I'm, I'm praying for that day. But it was actually Indonesia this time, my fourth time there, in response to a call that came to us from our missionaries and from their sending agency. In the course of six weeks, four missionary families had either been attacked or broken into. Um, this is in a country and in, a, in an island particularly where there are three million people who are Muslim. The Sasak people of the island of Lombok have never been penetrated with the gospel. And uh, through these circumstances, the missionary team that was there was left shaken and really questioning what was going on. And so I, along with another pastor, had the privilege of responding to that call. We got the call on Thursday, and on Monday night we were at the airport to fly that lovely 24-hour trip in coach. That's really suffering, I want you to know. When you're this tall and your knees are kind of under your chin, but actually we counted it a privilege to respond and to spend a week with the team there in Lombok and to encourage and to minister the Word of God to them. But even in that trip, as well as my trip to the Ukraine, I feel I came back changed. I have not made any of these trips to a mission field where I have not seen great differences between them. I mean, Ukraine is nothing like Indonesia. Neither of them are anything like like Mexico, and none of them are like China. And I visited all of these with, with workers that we have. But there is a set of similarities that I have discovered on each of these fields as I talk with not only the missionaries there, but I talk with the believers that have come into these new churches that have been established, and I begin to meet the believing community. I discover, first of all, believers are a small, small, small minority of the population. In some cases, they are so small as to be virtually unknown the larger populace. Most of the believers I meet are new converts. There's an immediate bond, though, between us, even though we cross cultural barriers. In Indonesia, I found this especially interesting. When I made my third trip back, I'd had the opportunity to meet someone there twice and to correspond with him and to be a real encouragement to him. And we have, we have been praying for one another. And when I came back, we still don't speak each other's language. He's got about three phrases in English that wouldn't get him too far. And my Bahasa Indonesia is even worse. But we would get together and his face would light up. And I know that tears would come to my eyes to see him again and to experience the bond that we have because we're seeking to serve the same Lord in very difficult but different environments. One of the things that comes up is you, you discover they express that bond in different ways. In Indonesia, it is perfectly acceptable. In fact, it's almost expected that, well, you not only greet your friends, not only can you hug them when you meet them, but it's perfectly acceptable to walk arm in arm or hold hands as you're walking along. i got to tell you, that was really something to have to get used to. Have somebody meet you at the airport, greet you, shake your hand, and have an adult man take your hand and walk you across the parking lot. Unfortunately, my first thought is, is anybody looking at me? I feel really stupid. But I, I, I discovered this is the way that they simply demonstrate the fact that they view you as a dear friend, as a brother. And you see it all the time in their culture. And, and you begin to think it's kind of a shame that in our culture we've lost some of the ability to express to other people the bond that we share. 
But I discovered there was a vibrancy, even in the midst of difficult circumstances, that I don't find in most churches I visit in the United States. Now, there are problems overseas. When I was in Ukraine and ministering in Baptist churches over there, I found that there were some difficulties that they faced. Seventy years without having open theological education has left them with a great need for teachers who know and can share the Word of God. There have been doctrinal errors that have crept up that need to be combated and need to be dealt with. The churches certainly are not perfect. In Indonesia, they face problems of bringing cultural issues into the church and how to deal with those issues. There are problems, but there is a vibrancy there. That has, I just wish there was some way I could bottle and bring back. I've told people before, I never feel quite as alive in my faith as I do when I'm in some of those settings. And I've tried to figure out why. Because I love what I do. I love being a pastor. I wanted to be a pastor long before I became one. I sensed God's call in my life at an early age. And I'm doing what I love. Dewey Bertolini was quoted as talking about dreaming about and chasing after your wildest dreams. I'm living those out in ministry. And I love it. And I want to encourage people to pursue it. But you know, I see something in places elsewhere that I don't see in most of our churches here, and it concerns me. In Ukraine, for example, I watched a small group of 15 people meet in a living room and, and conduct a small group and, and share together their concerns and sing together and worship together and pray together. And I, and I saw the intensity with which they approached the Scriptures. And they loved the fact that I and another co-worker, our missionary over there, were there so that they could ask these two American Bible teachers questions. And boy, did they. But you know the thing that amazed me most was that this group was put together out of people that were one to the Lord, half of them one to the Lord by the leader. And the leader was 15 years old. I thought to myself, how many 15-year-olds could I think of in my church or in my country that I could put, put in charge of a small group? How many of you could I put in charge of a small group to disciple other people to maturity? I don't know. In that same household, we went to church to a youth meeting on Wednesday night. We took the bus as far as it would go, and then we got off the bus and walked a mile and a half downhill, which was fine going, but I was thinking all the time, you know, we've got to come back up here. We got to the church and found it filled with young people to worship the Lord. But the amazing thing again was there were no cars in the parking lot. And when we left, everybody walked a mile and a half up to where the bus would catch them and take them to wherever. And I thought to myself, I wonder what my church attendance would be. If everybody were reliant on public transportation and the closest stop was a mile away. In Indonesia, I talked with a missionary, and this was one of the incidences that, that prompted my going, who has spent seven years trying to stay there, five years living on this island, finding it very difficult going, finding it very, very discouraging in many ways. And it was capped a few weeks ago when intruders broke into his house. His wife heard a noise, went out to the living room, was grabbed, held at knife point. She screamed. He came out. He saw that man holding his wife. He managed to get him away from her and free her, but two of his compatriots hiding in the darkness attacked him. He was stabbed eight times, taken to the hospital where the only thing they told him that they could do was clean the wounds and start an IV of antibiotics. He had to be medevaced out to Singapore for emergency surgery. 
I talked with him the day he arrived, actually the day after he arrived back on the island of Lombok after treatment, after being released from the hospital. And I know what the guy's been through, and I know the discouragements, and I know the challenges, and I know how hard it has been, and I know that he and our missionaries, the Wilcoxes and the others, are constantly fighting to get visas because Indonesia doesn't want missionaries. And they get visas for six months at a time and they have to f- spend all this time getting paperwork and they do this and you say, why put up with this? And yet this guy is excited because after going, coming home for a little while for recuperation, he and his wife are going back. I've met believers who have been denied admission to university simply because they were believers. I've met pastors who were thrown into jail for preaching the gospel in their own churches. Believers in Ukraine, and I know you've heard this from other sources, because it's true in Russia as well, believers in Ukraine often begin their Christian walk by walking forward at the end of a worship service and repenting. That is, taking a microphone and not just announcing they want to believe in Jesus, but announcing all of the sins that have kept them from Christ up to this point, of which they are now repenting. Could you imagine that in our churches? Before you you join, we'd like you to take this microphone here and please list for us your chief sins, those that were the greatest mark of your rebellion against God. The amazing thing is none of these believers think of themselves as being out of the ordinary. They think this is just what they should be doing. And I don't have the heart to tell them that most believers in the United States would be walking around with their jaw hanging on the ground. Because most of us don't have any clue what kind of commitment they have just accepted as being normal. As I thought about this and I tried to think about why this is so, I've, I've asked myself a lot of questions. Is it, is it the wealth of our country? Is it because we are so rich and have so much? Clearly, all the areas I've visited are much worse off than us materially, even though in many ways I see them better off spiritually. Is it the persecution that they've faced? Clearly, in all of the areas I have visited, believers have been actively persecuted by those who do not want to see the gospel furthered. I think those may be part of the answer, but they can't be all. For you see, I believe that what we're seeing is, in those cultures, the absence of certain spiritual problems that exist here. And spiritual problems always have spiritual solutions. And I believe that the solution, in some, to some great extent, is related to the issue of spiritual commitment. And so I turn you to that text that probably as well as any addresses this issue. That text I heard 23 times my freshman year. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. The call to sacrifice. Let me read it for you. I'll read verse 2 as well. I'd love to share verse 2 with you. I have a sneaking suspicion I won't get there. I'm reading from the New International Version where it says, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, 
but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. We find in verse 1 of Romans chapter 12 an amazing call to sacrifice. If you've been in any sort of discipleship program at any time, you have probably had to memorize this verse. It is an exhortation. Paul is good at giving exhortations. It's a call to do what is right. Its recipients are brothers, people who are in the family of God. Paul is not speaking to the world. He is speaking to us. And its basis is given to us in two places, the word therefore and the phrase in view of God's mercy. As we were singing the song, It is well with my soul, we came to the verse that says, My sin. Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Has that thought really gripped your heart today? Has the thought that your very life is wrapped up in the fact that God so loved you from eternity past that he would ordain all of his providences, all of his created order in such a way that he would set his love upon you though you do not deserve it and have done nothing to earn it. And he would nail the whole of your sin to the cross with his son Jesus. That is God's mercy. And the reason Paul begins with therefore in view of God's mercy is that the whole of Romans up to chapter 12 has demonstrated the amazing mercy of God in God's righteousness. The first three chapters tell us of the unrighteousness of man, of all men. There is no man who can stand before God and say, God, I deserve your favor. The unbelieving world as a whole is condemned. The moral man is condemned. The religious Jew is condemned because even though he has the law, he doesn't keep it. And Paul concludes the section by saying, all are condemned. But then he says, there is a righteousness of God revealed, not through the law, but by faith. And from the end of chapter 3 through chapter 8, he presents that righteousness of God imputed to us through Jesus Christ. And in chapters 9 through 11, he chooses the most wonderful example of the sovereignty and providence of God in demonstrating mercy. He says, God chose a nation, not because they deserved it, but because he chose to have mercy on them. He has set them aside temporarily, not because they will be set aside forever, but because he wants to show mercy to bring in the fullness of the Gentiles. And because of his mercy, that nation once set aside will once again be brought back to the point that Paul closes chapter 11 with a wonderful benediction where he says, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past. And in view of all that God has done to demonstrate His mercy to all his, and His mercy to you, He exhorts you. He exhorts you 
to an action to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Now again, this phrase sounds very poetic to us, but you have to understand the context in which it was spoken. The main action is to offer sacrifice. That's nothing new to anyone reading this. Every religion known to the people who have received this understood the idea of offering sacrifice. The Jews obviously had a tremendous sacrificial system developed. But pagan religions also offered sacrifice. And in all of these religions, there was a common denominator that said, I must acknowledge that there is a God above me whom I must please, whom I must honor, whom I must acknowledge. And I do that through offering something that costs. That's what the word sacrifice means. And so we are asked, we are exhorted on the basis of all that God has done to offer something that costs. What is it? It says to offer your bodies. Isn't that interesting? To offer our bodies. Why our bodies? We tend to emphasize the internal dimension of our spirituality to a great extent. We tend to say things like, it's important who we are in our heart, it's important who we are in our minds, and, and you know, all of those things are absolutely true, but do you understand that your heart can't do anything without your body? Your mind can't out, act out any plan it creates without your body? The reason your body is called upon to be the sacrifice is because your body is that instrument through which you accomplish anything in this world. Name for me something you can accomplish for God without using this. You say, well, I can pray. Even there, you are using elements of the physical as well as the spiritual, as well as the mental. Your accomplishment of the work of God involves all that you are. It involves this. Now, I don't want to use this as some tangent to jump off saying that, you know, you know, talking about just the body. But I do think it is important that we understand that God always looks at us as a totality. Which means that if we're going to offer our bodies, our bodies need to be cared for as the temple of God or the temple of the Holy Spirit. They need to be shepherded in the sense of of being guided in a, in a course that, that says, I'm going to take care of it. I'm going to use it wisely. And I think those things are all true and important. But the greater issue is it needs to be used. It needs to be actively involved as a living sacrifice to God that is holy and pleasing to Him. Now let's talk about those things for a minute. If you're going to offer the totality of yourself, how are you to do it? Well, Paul gives us three qualifiers. He says, it is first of all a living sacrifice. So that answers the question of, of dying for Jesus. Now, we may be called to martyrdom someday, but the idea is not that our life ceases to be so that somehow God does something through us. No, it's living. It's continuous. It's something else, though. It's holy. 
The word holy is a greatly used word, but often misunderstood. At root, it means set apart for God's purposes. So it is to be a sacrifice of the totality of ourselves, including our bodies, to God. It is to cost us something, and the reason it costs us is that it involves our living, our day-to-day existence, and it is to be a day-to-day existence set apart for God's purposes. It is one other thing. It's called a pleasing to God sacrifice. That's the way the original language puts it in terms of the fact that pleasing to God is the modifier of the sacrifice. Back in Genesis 4, two brothers offered sacrifices. Cain's sacrifice of the the fruit of the ground, and it was just some of the fruit of the ground. It wasn't first fruits. It was not something that apparently cost. It was a apparently a haphazard and casual offering was an offering that it says God found no pleasure in. But it says that God had regard, literally took pleasure in Abel's offering of the best, the best of his flock. Later on, we read that Noah, after the flood, offered burnt offerings to God And when God smelled the aroma, it says he took pleasure in it. It is the sacrifice that we offer to God that makes it possible for us to have a real sense that God is looking down right now at me and is pleased. I have three small children. I know what it is from the dad's end to take pleasure in the things that they do. And I know what it means to them when they see that I take pleasure in the things that they do. Now, interestingly enough, Paul, giving this exhortation, says you need to offer your life to God in such a way that you are saying, God, the totality of my living and existence is set apart for your purposes, God. It's not going to be that I cease living. It's that I really begin living, but I'm going to do it, God, with your purposes in mind, not my own purposes. I'm going to do it in such a way, God, that that I want it to be offered to you in such a way that you can look down and say, and I mean no disrespect in this, that's my boy. That's my daughter doing that. And Paul goes on to say, this is only your spiritual act of worship. And the word spiritual here, as I'm sure you've heard others tell you, is not the normal word for spiritual. It's a word that literally means that it is rational. It is that which should naturally follow. In the vernacular, it's a no-brainer. It's something that should just naturally follow because of the wonderful mercies of God. This should not be something that is unreasonable to our minds that God would ask of us. It should, in fact, be that which we consider to be That which should happen. It's natural. Of course we're going to do this. But it's at this very point that I am fearful that the majority of American Christianity has failed. 
Because I don't think most American Christians consider it a no-brainer to live life wholly set apart for God's purposes instead of our own. I don't think most American Christians consider it a no-brainer to say that I need to live my life constantly with the thought that God is watching and He wants to take pleasure in what I'm doing, not find pain in it. Not hit His head as, as a parent so often does and says, they've done it again. And it is at this point that I fear American Christianity has settled for a mentality that treats our salvation more like the buying of an eternal insurance policy. Fire insurance, if you will. Than treating it as the beginning of the experience of eternal life. See, eternal life isn't out there. Eternal in character, eternal in its essence, life begins the moment we come to know Jesus. And we've settled for a view of our salvation that is primarily focused on the future. At least when I die, I'll go to heaven. At least when I have a crisis, I'll have somebody to call on. I'm in good hands. Well, you are. But in taking that view of our salvation, we have basically forfeited the vast majority of what God wants to give us now, what He wants us to experience now. I believe it's in this issue that people overseas. And so I do not find in other, in other cultures people madly pursuing their hobbies or their leisure. In fact, the whole concept of leisure as we have developed it in the United States of America is totally foreign to the church in most other countries. They don't understand what we're talking about when we say, well, you know, you've got to have your couple weeks vacation in the summer and you also have other breaks and all of these other things going on as well. And you've got to have enough money to spend on the leisure that, that you want to take. See, they're looking at it saying, well, life is short and hell is hot, so we better be about the business of the one who saved us. And we want, and, and they don't look at it as a chore. They look at it as the beginning of the experience of life totally given over to God to see Him working through them and knowing that heaven is just going to be even more of the same, but to an infinitely greater degree. If I didn't know better, I'd think most Christians from America, at least, when they get to heaven, are going to go into a little bit of a shock and... If, if it weren't for the fact that God was sovereign and is working all of this out, I, I think that some Americans might even be disappointed by heaven. Now, I know better than that. I know that that's not really true. But when I hear even Christian people talk about some of the sacrifices that are made overseas, when I share some of these stories with some of my friends here, you know, they, they just kind of shake their heads and I sure couldn't live like that. Oh, really? Oh, really? So your God isn't the same as theirs. The Spirit isn't the same there as here. 
and more than that. You don't think God expects just as much out of, out of them or out of us as he does out of them? My own conviction and the thing that just eats at my heart in a, in, a, in a way that just will not cease is that I believe that the scripture is true when it says to whom much is given, much is required. And I believe the American church has been given more than any other church in the world and what have we done with it? What are we doing? I can't tell you how many people I know who would give everything they own to be right where you are right now. The thought of being able to go to a Christian university where all truth is taught as God's truth and all disciplines are placed under the absolute authority of the Word of God. Where classes can begin with prayer. Where three times a week you can gather for mutual edification and encouragement in chapel. To whom much is given, much is required. If a 15-year-old boy whose only hope to be trained has been to take BEE courses, and yet he has done that for four years, he started when he was 11 so that he could disciple and lead other people. And while I was there, Sergei in the Ukraine continued to pump me for questions. Well, how do you disciple people? What kinds of materials do you use? What kinds of things do you do as you go through it? And I'm saying to myself, boy, what I wouldn't give to have these questions asked of me all the time at home. To whom much is given, much is required. Have we made the choice that says, God, my life is to be lived wholly, with your purposes in mind, with the idea that I am to live with your watching me, seeking to take pleasure in me, and my finding pleasure in knowing that you're pleased? We have to ask ourselves the tough questions. Is our life really a holy and pleasing to God's sacrifice? When I choose on how I'm going to spend my time, do I ask God how he'd want me to spend it? Do we work harder on perfecting the latest video game or our golf swing than we do perfecting our understanding of Scripture? Which takes more time out of your life? Do we spend more time talking about what we just read in the sports page than we do talking about what we've learned from God's Word? And I, I, I can hear it coming because I was there with you. And yeah, right, you know, that's not really fair because after all... Sports page is different every day. Well, I'll take sports. What about politics or hit or whatever it may be? What's your passion? What's the passion of your heart that comes out of your mouth most frequently? It's a good measure, along with your checkbook, of just what the priorities in terms of sacrifice are. Are we as diligent in getting involved in activities that lead us to spiritual progress as we are getting involved in activities that are fun and enjoyable? To my congregation living in this wonderful, yuppie community, I say, are you as concerned about your children making it to the various programs designed to nurture them in the faith as you are getting them to the latest heart baseball practice. 
Will you spend as much on your children's spiritual development as you will spend on making sure they've got the latest soccer, football, or baseball equipment? Because which are they going to take into eternity with them? And I'm not against soccer, football, or baseball. I'm just saying which is more important. How would I know? Why is it that tithing is such a foreign concept to most American Christians, but installment plans are second nature? Why is it that when you talk to Americans about their use of money, they say, well, I can't do that. Did you know that in surveys that have been done, and I don't know exactly how they do these, so you can take it with a grain of salt. But in surveys that have been done, they have surveyed the Christian community in various countries around the world to find out what percentage of people's income is given to the cause of Christ. Now, if you just add up dollars that are given to the cause of Christ, the United States wins hands down. Okay, we, we, we give the most dollars, so we can pat ourselves on the back for that. But you know what? If you take the number of evangelical believers and evangelical Bible-believing churches and you divide those dollars or rupiah in Indonesia or coupon in, in Ukraine or whatever the currency is, you divide that up and you equal it all out. Do you know where the United States comes down in terms of a survey of the world's Christian communities? Dead last. We give a smaller percentage of what we have to the cause of Christ than any other Christian population in any other country in the world. We have more cars, we have bigger homes, we have more food. We have so much food that it's almost ridiculous for us to pray, give us this day our daily bread, because we got the next two weeks worth in the cupboard. Would Jesus enjoy sitting with us as we make the decision to just relax a little bit and watch the latest R-rated video that's come out? We wouldn't go to the theater and pay $7 or we'll, we'll pay a buck ninety-nine at the video store to get it. Would he enjoy sitting and laughing along with us at the latest, the latest episode of Friends? Would he find it funny? Do we? I preach to myself as much as I preach to you because I am a product in some ways of my own culture, I find that the level of discipline that is seen as normal in so many other parts of the world just isn't there here, and I wasn't raised with it. So what I've had to do is build structures into my life that may seem very artificial, but I have to do it. That's why this morning at 7.45 I met with two other men to go over my accountability questions with them. Like, have you been in the Word every day this week? Are you praying? You mean a pastor has to be asked if he's praying regularly? Absolutely. Absolutely. Don't ever assume that being able to stand behind here gives you some sort of free pass. The disciplines come easy. They don't. Have you stayed away from explicit materials that somehow would, would compromise your stand? terms of your purity? Have you allowed yourself to be in any sort of compromising situation with a woman 
other than your wife, which then wouldn't be compromising, that might hurt your testimony. We go through all these questions. You know what the last question is? Have you just lied in any of the answers to any of your questions? So that at least if you lie, you have to do it twice. And why it's important to me to meet with such men every week. You know, I wish I had the discipline that I see in some other places and I see in some other lives. And I'm not saying I don't see it in some American Christians, but I'll tell you what, it's just not there naturally for me. So I've got to build structure. That's why I believe so passionately in the local church. And in the local church being the local church, where we get in each other's lives. Not just a collection of people who worship together, sing together, listen to the message, critique it over lunch, and go our separate ways. The call is to sacrifice. The call is to change. And you may be saying, all right, I surrender. Sing the invitation hymn. I'll come forward. But how do I change? How do I change? Well, I think that's what verse 2 talks about. And unfortunately, I don't have time to give you everything I'd like to say about verse 2. But just let me say this very quickly. It says, don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world. Conform means to be pressed into a mold, to be shaped outwardly like other things. It's what you do when you stamp wax or you stamp clay with something and it takes the outward form. I hear Christians say some of the craziest things sometimes, like, Oh, I know it's a sin, but God forgives. Oh, I know he hasn't had much of a testimony, but, you know, he signed the decision card when he was six, so I'm sure he's saved. I hear such crazy stuff like that, and I think, Where in the world did they get that idea? And there is my answer. They got it in the world. Our thinking from the moment of our birth has been shaped by an environment that is is intrinsically hostile to God. When we are converted, a miracle of the first order takes place, and that is the Spirit of God makes that which was dead, us, alive. But when He makes us alive, He doesn't somehow wave some sort of magic wand or plop us with a Bible in the head and say, you know, now you think Christianly. You don't. You must have your mind transformed, it says. You must be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How do we renew our minds? The Word of God is our only hope for renewal. We must let our way of thinking be changed completely by the Word of God. So that when the Word of God says it, we accept it. When the Word of God says this is real and this is false, we accept that what the Word of God says is real. If you want to begin to know where you need to change, there is no better place to start than honestly before the face of God with His Word saying, God, I'm reading this for you to show me what doesn't measure up and where my thinking needs to change. If you will do that, and if you will seek to find other people who have that same passion and allow them as members of the body of Christ to hold you accountable and you to hold them accountable, you can begin to change. I pray that your generation will become what no generation seems to have become in America this century.
that is the generation of Christians who say it's not enough to go to church. It's not enough to accept the, the same old average Christian life. I think I've even said it here before. I prayed, I prayed before I even went into church work. God, please never, never let me pastor an average church. I'm not talking about size. I'm not talking about building. I'm talking about average the way America conceives of average. Because if we do, I'd, I'd just as soon do something else. God, I want to be part of a fellowship like I hadn't seen growing up in churches, like I hadn't seen in America, but I have seen some of overseas fellowships where people really get involved in one another's lives and where they really are committed. They understand we're the army. We're the soldiers of the cross. One of my favorite hymns, it may sound strange, is that hymn. Am I a soldier of the cross, a follower of the Lamb? Shall I fear to own His cause or blush to speak His name? And here's the verse every American Christian needs to ask this question. Must I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease while others fight to win the prize and sail through bloody seas. No, I must fight if I would reign. Increase my courage, Lord. I'll bear the toil and I'll endure the pain, supported by your word. May God make that a reality. In my life, may he make it a reality.